This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible Berry Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in LGBTQ Plus Studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee. I'm a PhD candidate and Vanya Scholar in the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Western University. And I am delighted to have Dr. Marit Sullivan with us today. Dr. Sullivan is Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Loyola Marymount University. Professor Sullivan's research and teaching interests include feminist and queer theory, feminist methods, critical health studies, and identity-based health politics. Today, we'll be in conversation about Dr. Sullivan's new book, Lesbian Death, Desire and Danger Between Feminist and Queer, published by Minnesota University Press this year. Um, Welcome to the New Books Network, Marriott. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited to get a chance to talk about this book. Me too. Um, I am excited to hear you speak about this uh, wonderful book. Um, could you begin by telling us a little bit about your intellectual and affective journeys uh, and how those journeys have culminated in this book? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in many ways, this book started about 15 years ago um, when I was actually working in public health research and I was managing a project called the Women's Wellbeing Projects, uh, but was actually a study of lesbian breast cancer. So it was in the field of social and behavioral public health. So what we were looking at was how did folks who had had breast cancer, how did they fare five years, 10 years and beyond after Um, the initial diagnosis and treatment. And we were specifically comparing lesbian women to their heterosexual counterparts. And so I was doing that work in my day life, while at the same time I was a part of wider feminist and queer organizing uh, that was often organizing that was happening in response to both the mainstreaming of gay and lesbian life through gay marriage, wider conversations around healthcare for all versus, you know, gay marriage being a gateway to healthcare for some queers, and especially around these ongoing battles about quote unquote women's only spaces and specifically the Michigan Women's Music Festival. And so um, 
it was a lot of that work that actually brought me to doing a PhD in women's and gender studies, where I was especially interested in tracing the sort of longer histories of breast cancer activism, and specifically lesbian breast cancer activism. And as I got started on my dissertation, I was in the archives, sort of looking for looking for what was happening in 1970s women's health organizing around breast cancer. And it was there that I stumbled upon the CLIT papers. CLIT stands for Collective Lesbian International Terrorists. And these these manifestos, which I talk about in the book, are just so wonderfully and delightfully Solanus-esque Valerie Solanus ask in their like completely vitriolic commitment to the full scale destruction of heteropatriarchy. And, and in many ways are very emblematic of the kinds of what I call politics of destruction that get attached to lesbian feminism and specifically to lesbian separatism. And so these two moments are these two so this that moment of finding the clip papers is actually when the project switched to be about this wider question of like what is lesbian what does lesbian do politically and that's all also against this backdrop of again what i think is a kind of ongoing accusation that younger people no longer want to be lesbians lesbian identity is going out of style there's no more lesbians whereas on the one hand here i was being funded 15 years ago by organizations like the American Cancer Society to study lesbians. And simultaneously, I'm witnessing what I see as a kind of move away from lesbian as this kind of destructive political force, this kind of disidentification in a certain way. Um, Well, actually, I want to take that back and not say disidentification, because I think part of what I see happening is that this claim that queer is forgetting lesbian is really a kind of representational claim. Whereas if we trace lesbian as this certain kind of political commitment, I think we find it traced through what movements that we might call queer today. But simultaneously, we see this kind of weaponization of lesbian and lesbian identity, specifically against trans women, um, but against wider sort of movements for thinking gender justice, thinking economic justice, etc. And so part of what um, I see, so the project in many ways then responds to all of these wider questions, like what what are our attachments to 1970s lesbian feminism, but also what's going on in this sort of hand-wringing anxiety that no one wants to be a lesbian. And I think we see that anxiety in a number of places. I anchor it also in Bonnie Morris's book, um, 2016 book, The Disappearing L. And in that book, Morris really anchors this loss of lesbian and the loss of lesbian spaces. And so part of what I'm interested in or what brought me to this is this dizzying experience that I have of, on the one hand, for almost 10 years now, I've been working on this project on lesbian identity. And if I sit next to someone on a plane and say, I'm writing a book about how no one wants to be a lesbian, they'll often be like, oh, but I know so many lesbians, like there's lesbians everywhere. Um, And that against this backdrop of this sort of internal lesbian conversation of like, well, no one wants to be a lesbian anymore. And so I I see that I want to, or what, what this book does is that I want to talk about that in two day, two ways. One of which is that that I think empirically, 
there still are lots of people who call themselves lesbians, whether or not that group overlaps with the group of people who uh, would anchor their social and political life in these histories that lesbian feminism promised in these political commitments is one question. But simultaneously, what I'm trying to argue is that those folks who might worry that lesbian identity is going out of fashion, that no one wants to be a lesbian, which is a claim that I reject. But even if we were to take seriously the worry, then I want those same folks to take seriously the weaponization of lesbian, um, especially against trans women, even the weaponization of lesbian against youth. Um, Because I actually do find that I think it's younger people today are very invested in lesbian politics and lesbian cultures in expansive and capacious ways, in ways that are actually about fighting against white supremacy, about fighting against transphobia, about economic justice, etc. Absolutely. And um, also my own identification with the term um, has been incredibly empowering and I, and I felt extremely affirmed um, by your book as well. Um, at the very outset, you begin by mentioning that your project approaches the lesbian with ambivalence, um, and that su- such ambivalence is central to ongoing debates around lesbian death and survival. Um, could you tell our audience a little bit about how this ambivalence informs and shapes your book, um, and why is it necessary to hold on to this ambivalence today when interrogating lesbian politics and activism? Yeah, this is a great question. So. In the book, I, I, I really do route, root myself in this ambivalence. And I'm taking my use of ambivalence from psychoanalysis. You <laughs> know, that might not come out as clearly in the book. But, you know, I, I think culturally, we tend to think of, or colloquially, let's say, we tend to think of ambivalence as this kind of like flippant dismissal, like, ah, I don't care, I could take it or leave it. But if we think through psychoanalysis, ambivalence is really this state, this like sort of tension of love and hate, right? And so in in the sort of developmental system of Melanie Klein, actually being able to come to the place where you can hold these two feelings in tension about an object is a point of developmental maturity. And so I think that, um, and so in other words, you know, being able to engage ambivalence is to recognize that things that bring us comfort can also be a source of frustration, that things that bring us joy can also be harmful. And so for me, anchoring myself in ambivalence is necessary to de-idealize lesbian. And I think part of what I see happening in these wider hand-wringing conversations about lesbian identity is this real idealization of lesbian, um, an idealization even of lesbian spaces, but also of, of lesbian politics, of lesbian identity, um, and I, I'm very interested in de-idealizing lesbian, not because I want to sort of cut lesbian down, but because I think that that there's a necessary part of the project of lesbian that we have to engage, that lesbian can be weaponized, that lesbian can be a source of frustration, of pain. Um, but I think that this ambivalence is also a guiding affect for the wider queer and trans engagements with lesbian that I see in in my own sort of peer groups, in my own political work, et cetera. And so I'm thinking 
Um, my colleague Emily Owens at Brown University is currently in the beginning of a project on lesbian humor. And we talk a lot about these these sort of like shared humorous references. I, one that comes to mind is, you know, talking about lesbians and Subarus or thinking for myself, I'm, I'm I've owned a Subaru for nearly 20 years now, and it's often when I'm trying to position myself in lesbian spaces, I'll talk about being a Subaru owner. And this is this real sort of tongue-in-cheek, wink-wink way to talk about being informed by lesbian culture. Um, And ways that I think are both a little bit cringy, and I say that, I hope that I'm saying that in a more sort of TikTok generation way, like cringe as something that we like love, that we desire, that we're that we're attached to, even as it sort of pushes on something that we're uncomfortable with as well. Um, and so I think that there's a way in which part of what I'm doing, especially again in thinking about the weaponization of lesbian, is is saying that there's many of us who hate lesbian. And I think, you know, hate is a strong word here but I, I use it specifically in this idea of ambivalence as a tension of love and hate. But because lesbian is being weaponized against queerness, against gender, most especially against trans women. But I actually think that it's in the spaces where you find avowed commitments to queerness, to gender expansiveness, to trans women, that you find this ambivalent relationship to lesbian. And that ambivalent relationship, I want to say, is it is a good thing. It's a developmentally appropriate thing. And it's actually the space like ambivalence will allow lesbian to persist because, because we're able to tolerate that lesbian can't be everything we want it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are um, so many trans women who are lesbians to, to say absolutely. that. I um, mean, <laughs> yeah, to say that it's under I, I achievements about politics. Yeah, yeah. but trans women in my experience you know lesbian lesbian feminist culture survives because tra- because of trans women trans women are lesbian feminist culture and have been from the beginning and i think um you know that that's both important to name and recognize but also what i find so dangerous about this weaponization of lesbian Absolutely. And while going through your book, I was also thinking how lesbian politics can redeem itself, um, really. And, and maybe we'll find uh, answers from you during during this um, interview. Um, you separate lesbian as a kind of person from lesbian, which you write in italics, as a political and social signifier. You also use lesbian as a floating signifier to, to trace its mobility. Uh, could you tell our audience what the lesbian as a floating signifier does uh, and what kinds of lesbian mobilities it um, helped you interrogate? Yeah, this is um, this is such a great question. I have to admit that in the first draft of this book, I tried not to use the lesbian in any specific way. It made for a rather clunky reading. Um, but the, but this distinction is really central to what I try to draw out in the book. And I think it's related to a lot of what I've said um, in the previous question, that there's many people who might not say, like, I am a lesbian, but still feel hailed by lesbian cultural and political signifiers. And if we trace lesbian to these cultural and political signifiers, but also commitments, then we also can find lesbian in all sorts of political and social movements that might not foreground the language of lesbian. Um, 
And so here, you know, I'm reminded often of Bell Hooks, who famously said, I, I'm not, I'm going to, this is paraphrasing, I, I should have the quote in front of me, but, you know, I'm not a feminist, I advocate for feminism. And I like to think in that way, like, I'm not a lesbian, I advocate lesbianism. <laughs> and what does it mean to advocate lesbianism? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I'm fond of, of coming up with other terms like lesbianic to describe those cultural touch points and those political touch points that I think many of us carry into work and into ways that, that you and I were just talking about being lesbian and queer, the relationship between lesbian and queer. And I think that so much of the disidentification or the move away from I am a lesbian is not actually because people don't want to be lesbians so much as it is that the most vocal voices <laughs> That's a redundancy. But the loudest voices, or perhaps even not the loudest, because I do think that they're actually a very small voice, but the ones who make the largest claims on the singularity of lesbian are doing so in ways that are exclusionary, right? And we can look to women's, women's only spaces to see this, that to be a lesbian, you have to be X. And so the disidentification that comes about in the last 20 to 30 years, I see less as a, a whole scale rejection of the histories of lesbian feminisms and more as a like, okay, fine, <laughs> then I won't be a lesbian, but I'm still going to do, I'm because that's because you're saying lesbian has to be this, but I'm committed to this, this, and this that is, has little to do with what you're demarcating as the gates around lesbian over here. Um, and so that's what I, I'm, you know, trying to, draw forward. And in so doing, I actually, perhaps counterintuitively, want to dissuade people from the idea that lesbian is going out of favor. And I want to do that on two fronts, because one, like I've said, I think there remains plenty of people who call themselves lesbians. Uh, so, you know, and you can look even to the field of public health, for example, to see just an explosion in counting lesbians, if, if you will. But I also think that the commitments of lesbian feminist politics are very much alive. One of the questions that that I don't know that I resolve in the book or or will resolve today, but is like, what's the overlap in the Venn diagram of these two? And I think that's where, um, you know, I talk in the introduction to the book about, I sort of nod to the end of Michigan Women's Music Festival, but then I talk about the Dinah Shore Festival out here in Palm Springs in Southern California, which happens every year. There's music. It's like a lesbian, I think I call it a lesbian bacchanal. Uh, it gets bigger every year. I think there's 100,000 participants. It might be less than that. I might be getting a bit hyperbolic, but it, you know, it's a huge lesbian cultural gathering. But no one points to Dinah Shore as a way to say like, oh, no, lesbian music festivals, lesbian life persists even after Michigan. And that's largely because Dinah Shore doesn't have a kind of lesbian feminist politics behind it. And so that's the other thing that this book is trying to do is to actually separate the lesbian or like capital L lesbian as an identity framework that can travel anywhere. You can be a CEO and be a lesbian and lesbian feminist politics that might not require we all say I am a lesbian, but are actually rooted in a social and political commitment to ending white supremacist heteropatriarchy.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you begin by mentioning in the book's introduction that you reject its its premise of lesbian death as a metaphor. Um, you write that the lesbian lives and the lesbian who lives is multiple. Um, and that there is, as you've mentioned already, there's a lot of anxiety surrounding the demise of the lesbian with the rise of the queer um, and the rise of the trans. Could you tell us what the significance of rejecting the idea of metaphorical lesbian death holds for um, queer politics and activism today? Yes, yes. I should say that you did send me this question ahead of time, and I believe I read it wrong, because hearing you say it right now, I was originally going to ask you to clarify if you're asking what the benefit is for queer in rejecting lesbian, but you're really asking what's the benefit in rejecting this metaphorical lesbian death. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, I think I think my answer will still be the same. I'll just phrase it slightly differently. So, you know, part of what happens in these conversations, as you've already pointed out, the lesbian becomes singular, but so does queer. And so part of what I push back on in the book is is even the idea that queer that queer goes with lesbian death. And so the lineages of queer theory and queer politics that I'm most interested in would be grouped under frameworks like queer color critique, queer abolition, queer anti-capitalism. And I think if we look at these movements or these academic lineages or intellectual lineages, they're deeply informed by lesbian political histories and in fact are central to lesbian political work today. Um, And so I think the benefit for queer in rejecting this metaphorical lesbian death is that the way that that queer gets framed in these claims of lesbian death also renders queer very static, very uh, ahistorical, which is such a bigger conversation in queer theory that I'm not trying to wade into, (laughs) But, but does a disservice actually to put it in somewhat mild terms to the ways in which queer, at least the queer movements that that I'm a part of that are most exciting and generative to my work are both center and central to lesbian feminist politics. And so I can think like during the pandemic, you know, you can remember, I, I hate to sound like I'm remembering any part of 2020 fondly because I think the last three years have been and continue to be just absolutely horrific. And there were these moments, especially I think in the first 12 months of the pandemic, which is just like a ridiculous thing to say, but um, that we were all trying to figure out, okay, how do we keep, how do we keep our worlds going while we're locked in? And there was this way in which we got to go to more talks and have, you know, book parties that were over Zoom and people could join from a number of time zones. And um, Julie Enzer and Sinister Wisdom put together so many fabulous events. They continue to put together so many fabulous events. But I will admit that my that I wasn't able to join remotely prior to the pandemic when I sort of learned this new way of, of uh, engaging community. And you could log into these Sinister Wisdom events on Zoom and there would be 400 people crammed into a Zoom room an open Zoom room, not like a webinar, but like an open Zoom room where you have to scroll through six pages of thumbnails to see everyone who is there. And just visually, this was such a, a spread of 
people generationally in terms of race and gender presentation and geographically where everyone was. So this incredibly diverse and rich community. And also, you know, as we're struggling to, to navigate Zoom, people are constantly have their mics unmuted and you're hearing this like sort of cacophony of everyday life, which also to me feels very lesbianic. It's like very grassroots, just kind of scraping by. Uh, there was one event that I was at where there was a sing-along with 400 people on Zoom, which, you know, can nearly like, nearly breaks Zoom if you've tried to sing together with people over Zoom. But but these spaces, which were rooted in in lesbian, in Julie's work with Sinister Wisdom, but were also just profoundly queer in the most, in the ways that we think of queer uh, capaciously. Right. And so I think that the, um, or let me think of another place where I think that it's beneficial for queer to disavow or to push back against this metaphorical death of lesbian. How do I want to actually make this connection? Cause I want, is, you know, um, this, I think that the, as I've sort of talked about, the claim of lesbian death can only be responded to empirically, or at least it seems. So no one wants to be a lesbian. You say, oh no, I did a survey of 1,000 college students, 1,000 women's studies college students, and 800 of them are lesbians, something like that. But that, you know, and then, and can we make an argument against that? Like, I don't know. We have the numbers now, but it, but it doesn't bring us to wider questions. So like I'm thinking here of the movement to defund the police. Is that a lesbian feminist project? Well, if lesbian is a movement against heteropatriarchy and if police are sort of the ultimate daddy to use the language of the clip papers who say kill daddy and they rule through terror and their primary job is to protect the property delete. And we're indoctrinated to think of police as these benevolent caregivers. Then I'm not sure that a celebration of lesbians in the police force is what lesbian feminist politics sought. But I think that you're likely to find a good faction of people calling themselves lesbian in police forces. So, you know, we could we could do a survey of all the police forces in the United States and find out how many how many officers identify as lesbian and this might give us some numbers to say like oh yeah lesbian identity persists but is that the is that the lesbian that we're is that the, the framework of lesbian that we're seeking to preserve or is thinking of defunding the police as a lesbian movement if if lesbian is about ending heteropatriarchy then defunding the police which you know, is actually less about defunding and more about funding and resourcing communities, economic justice for all, mental health care for all, a redistribution of resources for collective benefit, then to defund the police is a lesbian movement, even as doing so might make some police officers who identify as lesbians feel under attack, right? And so it's that kind of, it's that tension within lesbian that I want to, or I try to engage in this book. Yeah, that's that's so incredibly powerfully put. Absolutely. Um, 
in in the first chapter of your book, you write about anti-capitalist political frameworks um, that informed lesbian activism and politics before the 1990s, um, the loss of which you argue is is not lamented as much as the loss of lesbian spaces is. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what the loss of critiques rooted in anti-capitalism and anti-patriarchy means? for what we make of lesbian politics and community building, past and present. I, I feel you've touched on this a little bit um, in, in your answer to the previous question. Um, but yeah, I, I remain I remain curious. Yeah, yeah, I think I have some things to add. I mean, um, this is, I'm so, you know, I have to say the questions that you have are so wonderful and, and actually help me to feel like, oh, the book is doing what I was hoping it would do. So this question is especially, I'm especially grateful for. So I think that, you know, these critiques of capitalism, of patriarchy are very much still alive. And I think that if we follow these critiques, we can lead, they lead us to the enduring lesbian of lesbian, sorry, (laughs) the enduring legacy of lesbian politics, whether or not those movements call themselves lesbian, right? And so actually, um, Kristen Hogan's book, The Feminist Bookstore Movement, was really informative for me in thinking about this. I mean, I think about this switch point um, as being in the 1990s around lesbian biopolitics and and the rise of sort of lesbian breast cancer activism. Um, But Hogan notes this material shift in the 1990s about how book selling happens. And um, I'm going to... um, I should have reread this chapter of Hogan's book to prepare to answer this, but but she has this wonderful analysis of how, you know, in the 90s, all sorts of things are happening, um, including the rise of the internet, but other economic forces that are leading to big box bookstores, Barnes and Nobles, Borders, Amazon. And then there's a real movement to sort of re-solidify, I don't know if that's the verb I want to use, but, you know, recommit to independent bookstores. And Hogan notes that white women booksellers at the time became leaders in this movement to support independent bookstores. But in so doing, they entered this and, and, and they were successful. And so in so doing, they, they were part of a sort of economic viability of independent bookstores, at least for a while. But also in so doing, they left behind much of their anti-capitalist, I'm sorry, anti-racist, but also anti-capitalist and accountability frameworks and politics that had so informed feminist bookstore movements in the 70s and 80s. And so part of what happens is, you know, and, and Bonnie Morris's book is a really great, gives a lot of really great examples of how this conversation becomes a, about the loss of space. Well, no one appreciates this history. No one wants to engage it. People just want the easy thing. They just want to go to Barnes and Nobles and so they don't shop at feminist bookstores anymore. Without a wider sort of examination of what what are the economic policies that are happening around this? Or what um, what does it mean to trade economic survival against political roots? And that maybe holding on to your political roots might mean oh, not surviving economically, but is that like what's what happens in that trade-off or and again to use an example from morris's book she um early in the book talks about going to the uh like an i think an opening ceremony or or 
party for the LGBT Center at Georgetown University. And that there's these images, post, I imagine them as poster-sized images of students um, all around the room saying like, I am, I am queer, I am bisexual, etc. And that Morris notes that there was not one that said, I am a lesbian. And I could imagine just such a poster, like it could easily imagine a poster that would say, I am a lesbian, but then underneath have like a, and I, I want to be careful in ever talking about students, even a student that is totally imaginary in my mind, but underneath, you know, like a biography of the student saying, lesbian student is a double major in marketing and finance, whose career goal is to be a Fortune 500 CEO. But like, Again, is this lesbian? Is do we stop then to say like, oh, we have the poster that says I am lesbian, so lesbian lesbian life persists. If that framework of lesbian isn't attached to a feminist politics, or I mean, similar, we see a similar thing with the closing of lesbian bars, right? And so the Lex becomes this sort of national. There, there's a national outcry of the closing of the Lex, uh, which is a famous lesbian bar in San Francisco that I talked about that actually only opened in 1997, even though the ways in which the Lex is talked about when it closes in 2015 is as though it had been there for a hundred years or at least 50 years. Um, but the Lex, you know, was a, a famous lesbian dive bar in the mission and went out of business in 2015, largely because much of the neighborhood clientele had been forced out of the neighborhood and the rents were rising at such an astronomical rate that the owners could not keep the bar going. And so this becomes a part of a wider narrative that like lesbian, lesbian identity is gone because no one's going to the Lex and now the Lex is going out of business. But would those same people show up at the at protests in San Francisco to rally about the homelessness crisis in San Francisco or to protest rising rents or the city policies of the decade plus preceding the closing of the Lex that made it, you know, the sort of like tech playground uh, that led to these rising rents, both for residents and for commercial properties and changes the entire makeup of the city. And so those are the those are the things that I want us to grapple with or that I try to grapple with in the book um, and to think to think lesbian in these these anti-capitalist, anti-patriarchy, anti-racist roots and not solely as an identity marker that we can count. Absolutely. And, and I, as I was listening to you speak about this in, in such an advanced way, I was also thinking how um, the closing of bars, uh, lesbian bars, is seen as um, the demise of lesbian culture uh, or the, the demise of subcultural sort of knowledge, which we continue to access in many ways, even in the absence of bars. I'm from India and I, there are not um, many or any lesbian bars that I know of and, and lesbians still meet and queer women still meet informally and there's still so much uh, knowledge and, and intimacy to access. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. Yes. And I would actually also recommend Jack Gisa King's book, A Queer New York, where he does just a wonderful job describing exactly what you just said, the ways that lesbian community formations build and persist and shift in response to their context, right? And and the closing of a bar is not the end of a community. Yeah, absolutely. 
um, in in the second chapter of your book, and it's also one of my favorite chapters, um, titled Marked for Life, Breast Cancer and Lesbian Biopolitics, you explore the ways in which the lesbian comes to be associated with claims on the body. Um, and it in turn stabilizes the idea of a particular kind of lesbian body um, contained within norms of cis womanhood, um, which then aligns itself um, with uh, as you point out, with a project of state-sponsored normativity. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what the lesbian as a biopolitical category does in terms of moving lesbian politics away from projects of um, anti-normativity as well as uh, from lesbian collectives rooted in such anti-normative politics? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so at a baseline, I mark this as a moment where the state literally the National Institutes of Health, start counting lesbians. And this, to me, shifts the political claim that lesbian can make because lesbian is now a sort of protected, I'm not sure that protected is the right word, but a sort of constituted category for the state. And so to me, what this does is it it actually shifts, it, it's part of a wider shift in gay and lesbian politics in the 90s. Um, but this is sort of lesbian. In the in the book, I trace it, like this is sort of lesbians inroads through and with HIV AIDS activism, where lesbians are now, I mean, if they're being counted by the National Institutes of Health, it's a population that the state has a particular interest, might be too pointed of a word, but a, a particular investment in counting, knowing, understanding. And it does, it opens doors for, you know, for the work that I was doing in lesbian breast cancer research that was, like I said, funded by these major breast cancer organizations. But but similar to what we've been talking about in terms of anti-capitalism, in terms of Kristen Hogan's work with um, book women in the 90s, like what did we lose in in that turn to state-based recognition. And I think so much of what we lose is a political claim that associates lesbian with a politics of destruction. And this happens in many ways across the 90s, but, um, you know, in the early 90s, there's this wave of of lesbian chic, which is a various sort of like whitewashed suburban kind of lesbian framing. um, And lesbians are on the covers of a number of national magazines across 92 and 93. But around the same time, too, there's this major media outcry about a lesbian breast cancer epidemic and that lesbians are dying from breast cancer or suffering from breast cancer at at five times the rate of their heterosexual peers. And so this kind of panic leads to a different way of doing politics where lesbian is now uh, a a group, again, to be protected by the state, to be invested in by the state. And lesbian no longer carries that that threat that um, Victoria Hesford identifies when lesbian, the sort of feminist as lesbian figure emerges in the early 1970s. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, also connecting it to the idea of the classed lesbian. And it also made me think what kind of lesbian is deemed worthy of protection by the state. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and in the chapter, I talk a little bit too about how this then becomes like, you know, you see this kind of split of lesbians and 
African-American women, for example, in numerous places. But at this particular moment, much of the, the outcry in breast cancer research becomes that lesbians and African-American women, and then 10 years later, lesbians and African-American women and Latino women are have higher rates of breast cancer. But this sort of splicing it does this work to actually also render lesbian as a white gender normative figure who's like one degree away from the standard white cis heterosexual femininity norm. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's that framework, but there's also, um, you know, I think too, this question of normativity and anti-normativity is so important here because I think some of what happens in the um, in that in that particular strand of queer theory that's especially interested in anti-normativity, and which is the strand of queer theory that I really take up in the book, but I take it up in the book precisely because that's the strand of queer theory that is most readily sort of accused of leaving the lesbian behind, and you know, like all binaries, anti-normativity tends to set normativity as its guidepost, and in this way renders normativity kind of static. Um, and I don't think that lesbian feminist politics were so concerned with norms in that way, but rather really truly were like concerned with destruction, with destroying, ending white supremacist heteropatriarchy. And that seems both like a really nebulous and lofty claim, but also is the guidepost, I think, for much lesbian feminist politics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you write that lesbian framing that clings to radical feminism as a political ideology uh, and, and that the politics of lesbian separatism is rooted in a politics of destruction, as you've, as you've mentioned um, here as well. Um, and, and I quote, figure more, this politics of uh, destruction figure more um, violently and more literally than queer theories. Um, anti-social negativity, um, unquote. Would you like to talk about the whiteness of lesbian separatism and the challenges to it uh, posed by Kombahi uh, River Collective? Uh, and I taught the statement um, this semester. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to also hear what um, the challenges to it um was also posed by um, the anthology, This Bridge Called My Back, uh, especially the latter's call to coalition building by paying attention to relationships of power um, as the basis for uh, common political commitments as opposed to sameness of identity and our oppression. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is... I think this is so, such an important question. Um, because my point really is that vitriol, well, as I call it, but really this sort of like heated commitment to a politics of destruction and the rhetorical strategies that the writings of these groups groups use is a motor of lesbian politics, lesbian feminist politics, more so than the simple fact of separatism. And so part of what I'm diagnosing in that chapter is how foundational lesbian feminist work, like the Kambahi River Collective, like This Bridge Called My Back, is not read or touted as a lesbian feminist text. And so this framing, in this here, um, this is really Claire Hemming's argument in Why Stories Matter, but that 
the story tends to be that, you know, lesbian separatism was bad because not all men are privileged, but luckily black and third world feminism came around to remind these white feminists of how short-sighted they were or something to that effect, you know? And so in this way, black and third world feminism gets sort of positioned in the stories that feminist theory and feminist politics tells about itself as sort of rescuing white women from separatism um, or helping us to understand the limits of separatism. And certainly Kambahi and, and subsequent interviews, both in this bridge called my back and in a more recent text edited by Kianga Yamada Taylor called how we get free uh, interviews with um the Smith sisters and who were part of the Kambahi River Collective talk a lot about the limits of separatism. But I think to me, what gets lost in that read is that Kambahis and and others are actually saying that separatism is like too soft, (laughs) that it's too easy. And we know it's easy because separatism requires a lot of privilege. Like I like to say it takes a lot of capital to opt out of capitalism, right? But getting into the dirty and messy work of coalition, like that's hard work. It's messy work. In the words of Pat Parker, uh, in a speech reprinted in, in this bridge called My Back, it's not neat or pretty or quick. But part of what I, I try to highlight is, well, is precisely the ways that this claim of like, no one wants to be a lesbian, lesbian, everyone's forgetting lesbian politics, which again, I'm seeing, I mean, I think that that claim persists. It's, it's both kind of in some ways a foundational claim of lesbian feminist politics, but also you certainly see it in the 90s and the aughts in the last 10 years. Um, and, and what work that claim does shifts. It's not always the same claim. It doesn't do the same work, but there's an anxiety that persists. But I see it, especially after Morris's 2016 book, uh, which is also you know, two years into the global movement for Black Lives. Uh, I should know exactly what year How We Get Free came out, but I want to say like 2017. I'm looking it up right now. Yes, 2017. So here we are in this complete resurgence of talking about the Kambahi River Collective. And that's happening at the same time as this wider, louder claims that no one's paying attention to lesbian feminist histories, but Kambahi is lesbian feminist history. And with that, what I want to show is that so much of that, the, of the love part of the ambivalence about lesbian, I think, is this love of the, the, the deeply vitriolic, destructive politics, the ways, I mean, just so much of the writing in the 70s and early 80s, it, it, it hits you in this visceral way where you're just like yes you know and you can we i think for those of us like you and i who are feminist scholars we can probably name the moment when we first encountered those texts and part of the joy of teaching is watching students encounter these texts but part of what i'm trying to point to here is that like it's not the separatism that gave us that it's the movement it's the rhetoric it's the ways of doing it and we find so much of that in these very texts that are said to be the like sort of corrective and so the Kambahi River Collective for example says we realize the liberation of all oppressed people necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism as well as patriarchy and I mean this this statement may seem you know, there's ways you can read the statement. It's just like really straightforward. But when you like add that 
affect to it. Like, this is a big claim. This is a huge commitment. And their accusation is that separatism is too short-sighted. It's too targeted. I mean, they say in the statement that lesbian separatism lacks a coherent political analysis. Or one of my favorite pieces is Cheryl Clark's Lesbianism and Active Resistance, which is also printed in this bridge called My Back, where she states women are quote, women are kept, maintained, and contained through terror, violence, and a spray of semen. And then a few lines later, she says, against this historic backdrop, the woman who chooses to be a lesbian lives dangerously, end quote. And I, like, that kept, maintained, and contained through terror, violence, and a spray of semen, like, oh, that's the kind of writing that just makes me like, yes. And that's what I think we're all attached to. That's the love side of the ambivalence. And it's, and it's, it's here. It's in these texts that are, I fear, sometimes softened when they're positioned as the corrective to lesbian separatism rather than positioned as people who are like, oh, lesbian separatism, <laughs> like, that's cute. Let's talk about real politics. Let's talk about the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you assert in the concluding chapter of your book that we are not post-lesbian. Um, and I think that's been the central theme of, of this interview as well. Um, you write, and I quote, by releasing the lesbian from a singular framework of identity, one that is rooted in exclusion, we can open the lesbian to a capacious pol political project of world building, unquote. Would you like to tell us what this project would entail and um, how can its commitments enable lesbian politics um, to interrogate itself as it evolves yes yeah so um i mean i think this project is out there i think that's been as you point out a lot of our conversation um but i want those who worry over lesbians demise to see lesbians legacy which even to say lesbians legacy implies that lesbian is in the past but like Lesbians' legacy and ongoing ongoing viability everywhere. But even more so, I want those who worry about lesbians' demise to refuse in the staunchest and strongest possible terms the weaponization of lesbian. And so part of this refusing to be, part of this is refusing to believe the claim that no one wants to be a lesbian or that lesbians are going extinct. And so here I might return to Morris's specter of the lack of lesbian representation at the Georgetown LGBT Center, um, because I like to think that this was purposeful. Like, I like to think that, in fact, there were no lesbians there, that the lesbians on campus were refusing to be indoctrinated into the normative pull of campus LGBT politics that are often about representation, but not about institutional, social, or political change. And I like to think that these lesbians were elsewhere on campus helping to organize labor or reclaiming bathrooms from the gender binary without the oversight of the institution or reading the Kambahi River Collective in the basement of the library while discussing Marxism's failure to think race and gender. I mean, I hope that these lesbians were organizing a sit-in to demand better food choices on campus or better pay for those who provide the food from farmers to truckers to campus food workers. And so in that way, you know, the lesbian, the lesbian world building projects that I see are not actually about 
making more lesbians in the world per se, as much as they are about this continued commitment to a world otherwise, a continued commitment to, in the words of um, Kumbahi, actually I lost my place of what I was gonna read from Kumbahi, but that this is about collective organizing and the redistribution of resources that quote, material resources must be equally distributed amongst those who create the, these resources, end quote. But lesbian world building is about clean water and fresh air and mental health resources and defunding the police. And even more so about funding communities and trusting communities and thinking knowledge locally. Uh, I live in the, I'm not sure how much this is made national or internationally news, but I live in in Council District 14 in Los Angeles, where we are currently seeking to recall a city councilor who has been, who was part of a leak of targeted racist commentary um, and then has been refusing to leave leave his seat and has been a part of ongoing um, actual physical violence against Black Lives Matter activists here in LA. And part of this work as I'm gathering with neighbors in front of Trader Joe's to sign the recall efforts is a reminder too that, that so much of politics happens at the local level. And so when I think about lesbian campus politics, I don't think about posing for a picture, but I think about getting into that gritty work of understanding you know, where the points of harm are, where the barriers to flourishing are, and how we can break those points, how we can engage that politics of destruction. Um, and I see it happening in lots of places. And there was just three of many, many organizations that I wanted to mention that are doing this kind of work, including the Audre Lorde Project in New York, SONG, which stands for Southerners on New Ground in the Southeast of the United States, and Critical Resistance, which is a queer abolitionist organization that's here in the U.S. and internationally. And I think then in that way, lesbian world building is not just about lesbians, but is about envisioning and fighting for worlds beyond heteropatriarchy, which necessarily means fighting against white supremacy and capitalism, which are two of the strongest tools of heteropatriarchy. And so that's when we think lesbian capaciously, we follow lesbian to those projects, not just to the places where people say, I am a lesbian. Yeah, absolutely. This was wonderfully uh, complex and, and, and nuanced and profoundly political, and I could go on and on. Um, I, I realize that we are nearing the end of um, this episode. Um, um, but before we let you go, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on? Sure, yes. Um, so I'm currently at the very beginning of my next book, which I'm right now calling Herpes, a Cultural Study. Um, but it will, so it's, it's methodologically similar. I'm tracing herpes from the 1970s to today and thinking about its political travels and how the history or the biography of herpes can lead us to these different points to understand how HIV AIDS has changed for better or worse, or we might even say sometimes dangerously, sometimes in ways that, that lead to flourishing, um, have changed how we think about sex, how we think about surveillance, how we think about health, safety, et cetera. So that's what I'm working on right now. That sounds like a great project and also lesbianic can be a uh, book in and of itself. <laughs> yes. 
Um, thank you so much, Marriott, for for this um, incredibly generative conversation and and for this book, um, which I hope to teach someday. I really want to teach it someday. Um, thank you so much for for well, this. Thank you, and thanks for these incredible questions, which even helped me to better articulate some ways that I'm thinking in the book. So thank you. <laughs>